0: Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and equip you to take action to be all you can be. Today, my guest is survival expert, speaker, facilitator and mentor, Mike House. Growing up on a farm in the southwest of WA, Mike spent his formative years exploring and observing the bush, sometimes alone, sometimes with his father, who holds generations of wisdom, and sometimes with the Nungar people, who hold millennia of wisdom. He has spent 20 years working with groups as diverse as youth at risk, multinational corporations, and television documentary crews on what has been described as the world's most arduous survival exercise outside of the military. Mike has survived several life-threatening survival situations on ocean, tropical jungles, raging white water, and extended sea kayak journeys. By observing and leading people in complex situations of extreme deprivation and duress. Mike has developed keen insight for how humans either panic and suffer or adapt and thrive. He sees the same behaviors in ordinary workplaces show uh, and shows people how to view their work, daily tasks, relationships and opportunities through new eyes. In his spare time, Mike is building a two-seater open cockpit plane from scratch in his shed at his home, and he hopes to fly this as a present to himself for his next birthday milestone. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryn. Thanks for the invite yeah so um as i said in the introduction uh you grew up in the southwest mm. can you tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in the southwest um here in western australia during your childhood
1: yeah i think look i think i feel really blessed about where i grew up and how i grew up i grew up on a farm and you, you know i think it's possibly one of the most difficult ways to make a living but it's Is one that of a most dairy big... farm or... oh no it's uh, outside of dairy country so it's more wheat sheep right yep. down on the on the southern end there um, Bremer Bay's the nearest beach for people who are familiar oh, yeah. with WA, sort of in between Albany and Esperance for people with a bit less geography. And uh, I reckon it's pretty much the most perfect place you could think of to grow up as a kid. There's so much freedom to do and be and explore without many constraints that city kids really don't get and uh, just such a level of sort of self-reliance and exploration that you get into and uh, I made the most of all of that. You know, we had 3,000 acres down there and then another 10,000 acres of A-class reserve behind the place and um, spent, as you said in the intro, hours and hours and hours stomping around in the bush and learning lots of things just by observation. Was that, was that predominantly by yourself or...? A lot of it was, yeah. So yeah. Um, I I used to go out for really extended Bits of exploration, you know, full days sometimes. Mum, mum was delightfully relaxed about these sorts of things. So as long as we were around for breakfast and home by dinner time, yeah. what happened in between was fairly casual. So, um, I, I used to often leave the house soon after breaky and, and disappear into the bush and not come back until sort of just on sunset. And, uh, you know, over time, built more and more of a picture of what was out there in the reserve and, and strategies for finding your way around and getting back to where I came from and uh, not getting lost. And did you ever get it wrong uh, as a kid? Well, it's one of those things. You know, I think one of the questions you asked in the prep stuff for this was, "What's your view on failure?" And yeah. you know, it's to me partly that it's the time frame that that counts. So if you yeah. if you end up where you're meant to be eventually, then,
0: <laughs> I like that.
1: <laughs> then that's okay. There's. Yeah. There's been countless times over my childhood and my working life as an outdoor professional as well where I haven't known exactly where I am and there's moments of definite stress in that where you have, have that realisation you go, I actually don't know. Um, like most things, if you pause and look at it logically, and that's the challenge, is looking at it logically, taking the ego and the fear and all of yep. those other things that pop up out of the way... You can usually work it out because it's not like you can suddenly teleport to somewhere completely different. You know, you at the very least, you know, you're on the southwest somewhere. Yes. Uh, in in that patch of bush somewhere. Yeah. Where's the sun? Yeah. All that sort of stuff. So, you know, worst case scenario, find the boundary and walk around it in one direction. You know, you're eventually going to end up back there. So so there were definitely missions that went much, much longer than planned. Right. Because I didn't quite know where I was and how things went together. I like the reframe. Um, yeah. But... Um, And definitely times where there were big chunks of time where I didn't know exactly where I was and was in the process of sorting it out and varying levels of stress that went with that. So these would have been the times when you
0: sort of developed a lot of the mindset and skills that have led you to where you are now. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So that stuff was really formative and not consciously so. I think it's really only been probably in my late 30s and 40s that I've worked out the links from what i do now and that stuff back then um but one of the beauties of i think life on farms particularly in that era i think it's changed a bit now but there's so much where you you're fairly isolated there's a sense that to keep the show on the road you've got to be able to do it in-house with the resources you've got so there's lots of that thinking outside of the box and coming up with solutions to things that are not ideal but make it work Yeah. so self-reliance, productivity, um, working through problems to find a solution, um, positivity, just kind of forward-looking, a, a, a bit of a sense of being a observer of circumstance rather than a victim of. You know, if, if yes. farmers get wound up in what the weather's like and whether the crops are good or bad, that's a, a road to... A really hard life mentally, um, you need a certain amount of resilience and flexibility just to be in that game, so observing all of that stuff around me and participating it in in various levels certainly informs a lot of what I do now, yeah. so, so um,
0: as I said in the intro, so your father had generations of wisdom. Is that, is that
1: he came from a long farming background? yeah, so they were they were poms originally, and uh, on Dad's side of the family. Depending on which, whether mother or father's side of Dad's family, we're sort of five and eight generations in Western Australia, right? Um, and they were farming fam, they were a farming family in England too, so that they, right. you know, they had lots and lots of years of farming. Dad was a very untraditional farmer, so he he was. Uh, way ahead of his time in terms of environment and conservation he actually won an award for environmental sustainability stuff before that was even a term right and so his view was that a good farmer will leave the country better than how they got it and for him that meant uh, how it interfaced with the natural world around it so he was always looking at you know, how do we conserve and preserve and enhance the lives of things that are threatened by farming being there? How do we, how do we do that in a way that actually makes economical sense from a farming point of view, but also environmental sense? And he had a very, very long view right. of what that game was about. Um, still does. He's retired now. I'm talking talking about him in the past tense. Right. He's, he's still about. Um, so. His his view, I guess, of the environment was a very, very broad view, not just uh, how do we make money out of this thing called a farm, but how does it link in with the water systems around it and the right. rainfall as it happens or doesn't and the movement of animals across it and birds across it and insects and things like that. Uh, avoided the use of chemicals wherever he could. He wasn't totally chemical-free, but, but he would only use them very sparingly and in really dire circumstances. And... Um, and he's he's kind of, well, one of his, his grandfather was a botanist and a medical doctor and a farmer and uh, weird combo, I know. Yeah. So, so there's that sort of natural sense of inquisitiveness about what's going on. And even though we don't necessarily understand everything, observing is a good way to work out the relationships between things. Right. Or, And there always is a relationship is kind of an underlying assumption. You know, there will be connections between these things, even if we're not smart enough to spot it yet.
0: Yes. Mm. Yes. So you'll have taken quite a lot of that
1: uh, pattern of thinking into your own. Uh, childhood and walking out in, in the bush. Yeah, absolutely. That was why I was out there. It was a, a constant sense of exploration. And yeah. dad's still like that. You know, he, if, if you go for a walk somewhere, it's like, oh, maybe we'll just go over the next hill, and see what's there, you know, the next hill. <laughs> um, so there's that kind of inquiring mind, I guess. And, yes. and when you look back through our history, a lot of the family's been like that. You know, they were yeah. explorers and pioneers and, and doing things that was, you know, quite, quite out there for their time, you know?
0: Yeah. Mm. So I also mentioned in the introduction that you were drawing on the the millennia of wisdom from the Noongar people. Can mm. you tell us
1: a bit more about that? Yeah, so that was a privilege that I didn't really appreciate. It was a privilege back then was that because of that reserve and um, the relationship that Dad had with some of the local Noongar people, there were a number of guys that used to come and work on our place from time to time. And they would often come and grab a sheep for meat or hunt in the bush behind our place. And our place was a ready access point for that piece of bush. Right. So um, they would often come through our place on the way in there. And when there were opportunities, I'd go too. So, you know, I've got some very early memories around sort of seven or eight years old stomping around the bush with some, you know, reasonably old Noongar men Uh, looking for emu eggs and uh, bits of bush food and hunting and all of that sort of thing. And there's a whole other level of observation and knowledge there. And um, my experience of Aboriginal people across Australia is that if if they're met with respect, they're really passionate about passing knowledge on. Right. And um, there's a whole heap of banter and, you know, I guess... I guess it comes from years of sitting around fires and doing culture really, really well. You know, you look at sustainable mm. uh, sustainable communities and cultures, uh, they're, they're the example on the planet of the longest-lived uh, continuous culture, and so much time and effort goes into teaching people not only about the physical nature of where they are, but what's the connection of that to who you are as a person. Right. How does that relate to your community and your spirituality and your morality and all of that is woven into their relationship with land. So Can you expand a bit more on that? How how does that play out? Um so I want to acknowledge first of all that I'm speaking from a white fellow's perspective of some experiences along the way and acknowledge the uh you know the traditional owners of the country and and custodians of the sorts of stuff that we're talking about, and I just want to recognize that my perspective on that will be a, a, probably a, a slim shadow of what they would actually know okay, um, but having said that the I, I think a good example is dreamtime stories where if you know the story it's a it's a physical map of country, so there's actually song lines that you can walk from the top of uh, the, of the Gulf down in South Australia there, up through Uluru and all the way out to the Kimberley Coast. And if you know the stories along the way, the stories will tell you physically how to find the place. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're stories of the creation of the country and the creatures and the people in it that relate to physical attributes of the environment. So that hill was formed when this person or that animal fought with that. Lay down there and died, or this river was made when this serpent went through here on the way to this place to do this part of of their journey, and so the physical attribute to there. If you go around the base of Uluru, there's places where they talk about you know the the snake came along and while the rock yeah. was still plastic, pushed its body into the the edge of the rock, and when you walk around, it, it's like oh, this is that spot. You know, even if you've never been there, you can you can see it a bit further on. She laid some eggs this is that spot you know there's there's no question about right. where you are if you know the stories but then they layer into that things about so how should you behave when you get there so the while the story is about the creation of the country it's also about um you know this person was fighting with that person in the story and that was a good or a bad thing because you know so there's all sorts of clues about that. well how should you behave what's acceptable what's not acceptable um And because it was a totally verbal tradition, you know, everything is wound up in those stories. So very, very powerful, The, you know, morality, location, how you relate to – there's some quite complex laws in Aboriginal society about uh, how different groups of people can relate to each other. And so there's bits in there about who you need to know and how you need to approach if you're not that group of people before you can go through there, and all of that's wound into the stories. Very powerful yeah simple stories great depth and complexity uh involved in them awesome so you've got yeah
0: i guess listening to the influence that you're getting from these noongar people coming through your land from your father and the opportunity to uh, move around freely in Bremer bay it's a wonder you do what you do mm. Mm. so at what point um so, this is, this is your childhood. Mm. Um, how and what point did you realize that you wanted to go forward as a, an outdoor expert,
1: survivalist type person? Well, let's be. I don't know that I've ever been quite that clear about decision points. (laughs) Right. Um, Just a bit of an evolution. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a bit of a philosophy of life that's almost, you know, just see where the next doorway goes. Mm. Uh, So I guess a bit like that exploring the bush as a kid. It's like, I wonder what's over the next hill and that looks interesting. I think I'll go that way instead of that way. And um, so fairly early on in my professional career, I... I found out about experiential learning, so getting people involved in hands-on type stuff and then using that as a platform for observing behaviour and how people interact with each other and systems and processes and all of that. And and so I began to incorporate elements of that in pretty much everything that I did. And um, sometimes that was full-on outdoors work, running Outdoor-based experiential yep. learning programs, and sometimes it was elements of that being woven into things that were more indoor-based and more formal settings. And then uh, along the way, there was an opportunity to work as a survival instructor, and um, I grabbed that with both hands, mostly because it was it was fascinating to me. Mm. From that's the, with Bob Cooper, yeah, yeah. So it was fascinating from a couple of points of view. One was that um, you, there's that whole area of, well, how, how, what are the actual skills is a fascinating piece mm. of territory. But for me, more interesting is how do people think and, and react and respond to situations and how does that get them into trouble? And, you know, as you said in your intro, that's really where I'm at these days. I don't, I'm not currently teaching survival. Um, my, my main game these days is how do people, respond or behave under pressure how do we make it so that we're better under pressure how do we build resilience capacity to deal with stress yeah both individually and as teams and as organizations and then um you know how do we get this mindset that the survivalist kind of, the good survivalist has by default which mm. is that there's always a solution and it might not be the obvious one um, and that multi-use kind of mindset. You know, you say, okay, you've got a pair of shoes. It could be a pair of shoes. It could be a container for something. It, the boot lace might turn into part of the firelighting system. It's, yeah. You know, so you're thinking about I think one of the things we've ended up with in our modern society is that we tend to have single-use mindset. We've got this, and that's all it does. Yes. And when it's broken, we throw it away rather than thinking, well, could we how repurpose could it, use it for something different? And if we're in a bind, how do we, you know, put that together with that? And even though they don't go together, we can create something else yeah. and it'll get us through, you know?
0: Yeah. Mm. How do you
1: um, –
0: obviously you're – like you said, you're, you're trying to get these mindsets across mm. in more indoor purposes. Mm. Surely when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, there's a certain, um, beautiful clarity about the fact that you do have to focus. Yeah. And that, um, if you don't, well then the, the consequences. the consequences are pretty, are pretty clear. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Dead live. Yeah. Um, yet more often than not, we're faced with choices that, you know, and not, not as beautifully clear and transparent. Mm. You know, So it's kind of how do you get this mindset across to somebody who doesn't even want to go
1: outside in the rain? Mm. So it, I think that's a great question and, and it's one of the things that makes me really passionate about the work that I do now. Mm. You're dead right. I've had the opportunity out in that kind of environment, whether it's actual survival situations or, or scenarios that we're putting people through that training. It's crystal clear. It's it's generally fairly simple. There's not a lot of complexity and the feedback loops are rapid and aggressive.
0: <laughs> rapid and aggressive. <laughs> I like that. So you, you get, you,
1: you you know, and that's not only in terms of the life-death thing, but it's also you get to see the results of pretty much everything, you know, how you build rapport, how you manage relationships, deal with conflict, make decisions, handle uncertainty. um, Deal with the fact that plan A was where you hoped to be, but you're actually on Z.3 and that still seems to be not quite where we're going to end up. You know, yeah. all of those things you get to see very, very quickly. The results of how people behave usually turn up in well, a matter of hours sometimes and certainly no more than a day or two. So coming back into more complex environments, as you're talking about, you know, yeah. where the decisions aren't life or death and the complexity is much higher. And the burn times are much longer. Hmm. I think I'm now. And you've probably got a society loop over that. Oh, absolutely. You don't want to fall out with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm in a position to be able to give people a bit of a user manual for people under pressure because I've seen it in Hmm. in that level of clarity. And I think we're part of my experience has been really unique is while I was doing survival instructing in parallel, I was managing change projects back here in town. Right. And that was really what started me down the track of my current business, which is, uh, you know, I'm looking at both those environments and going, you know, they're so different at face value, physically, completely different. And yet the same kinds of things are happening, the same, the sorts of things that move people towards a likelihood of success are the same, the sorts of things that cause chaos, confusion decay are the same, the kinds of things that escalate conflict or de-escalate it are the same hmm. and so what would be the top sort of two or three or four things that you spot in these situations that that are similar whether you're out in the bush or in the workplace or what have you yeah so we mentioned earlier things like fear and ego Yeah. Uh, they're, they're two massive ones and Part, a big part of what I teach people about now is, you know, if you, if you've got any element of fight, flight or freeze activated and it, that's a continuum, it's not an on or off kind of scenario. Yes. It literally makes you more stupid. Yes. So the whole point of that reaction is it gets your frontal cortex out of the way so that you can act without thinking because thinking's too slow. Yes. And so. Even when we meet a new person for the first time, there's a little bit of that fires off and and literally our frontal cortex shuts down a bit and we lose a few iQ points <laughs> um, Someone puts us under pressure in a meeting and we can we can be the subject matter expert about something. Uh, in the room and were put on the spot to answer a question about it and go completely blank. Yeah. And people go, why is that? Well, it's because your frontal cortex is momentarily shut down, you know, and you might be able to remember it later, but right in that moment you're lost. So some of what I talk about is just shutting that down, and it's really simple. Uh, breathing slowly and rhythmically turns fight or flight off. Mm. You, you actually can't breathe so slowly and rhythmically and be in a fight or flight state at the same time. So... Is that more deeper down in your stomach? Well, it depends on how how you, how you would do it. So, so deep is important, um, but most important is rhythm. Mm. And depending on what you're trying to do, the location is important. So, breathing deep into your belly is great if you really want to relax. So, for a lot of people, it's about how do I how do I switch stress off, and you know get to sleep at night and things yeah. like that. Breathing deeply into your belly will do that. So often, when you get people to do that, they'll start to yawn. I feel tired um, and that's that's because it's inherently a very relaxing way to breathe if you want to breathe to be calm but fired up ready to go then breathe deeply and rhythmically into your chest so it's kind of lock your core muscles down and breathe yeah. deeply into your chest and you'll see people like MMA fighters do that Yes, uh, their core's really solid and they're breathing very rhythmically very slowly into their chest uh, and that's actually quite a sort of fired up state to be in, but not a hyper... But not losing those IQ points. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you you switched on and mm. very aware, but ready to go, ready for action.
0: Cool. So there was the
1: ego and the fear. Mm. What are the bits do you notice? Uh, so uh, part of it is that people get way more adversarial than they need to be, and and often that's around the the territory of expectations. I I often say that in survival situations, the thing that pretty much always kills people is expectations. And what I mean by that is if you left Perth in your four-wheel drive and you're driving along with the with the radio on and the aircon blowing and you've got a picture in your mind of wherever you're going, you don't expect anything to go wrong. You expect to actually arrive at your destination. And if you take a wrong turn that's a, an interruption of that expectation. So how you manage the fact that you're, you're off your expected picture yeah. is a big part of what happens next. And and often it's people attempting to get back to their ideal picture that gets them into trouble. They, mm. they get reactive and then they, they're trying to recover to that sort of point. And I think often in workplaces we're very, very unclear with each other about expectations. A big part of that is that they're often not, Tangible or visible to us, we hmm. they're, they're a, a layer of assumption that we have. So, you know, probably I'm, a
0: quiet assumption as well. Because how often do we actually verbalize our expectations? Right. And then I, I, I'm just thinking about this is, as I listen to you, it's not only do we verbalize them, but then it can seem kind of almost egocentric if I sit there and go, My expectation of this meeting is this. Oh, right. Yeah. Back in your box, son. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. back in your box.
1: (laughs) However, if everybody got their
0: expectations out on the
1: table. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you know, one of the bits of coaching work I do quite regularly with uh, with people who are leaders, for example, is that and it's a loop that's actually described in my recent book, uh, where people ask the staff around them to step up and go, Okay, I'll do that. That sounds good and then it doesn't go according to plan and yeah. there's some version of people taking the work back saying, well, it's not what I expected so I take it back and it, it usually comes down to they just haven't articulated what they mean by step up and the same thing happens around organisation visions and values. You know, we say things like, well, let's come up with a value statement. Well, we want respect. It's like, well, of course we do. Everyone agrees with that. Yeah. And you go, well, what do you mean? My, my version of it might be that I'll say to you in an, in an open meeting with lots of people present, that idea sucks, Brig. Yeah. And you, you say to me, well, that was disrespectful. And it's like, no, no, I respect you highly. And that's why I told you in front of people at the time that it was relevant. And you go, well, you could have taken me to a quiet corner and broken it to me gently, you know, yeah. where well, they're two different views of what respect means. So we, and that's before we add in cultural complexity. And so, Often we have this narrative running about what's, what's happening around us, the people and the things that we want them to do and the ways that we expect to work together and it's, it's not necessarily even clear to us and then when the inevitable disappointment of that strikes, yes. we tend to get adversarial. So we assume ill intent on the part of the other person and, and we'll either... Whack 'em harder with you know, i said step up yeah and listen, i still don't know what you mean by that but i'll yeah. have another go you know so we can end up way more adversarial than we than we need to yeah uh, probably one of the most extreme versions that i see of that in business and i've been there myself as a manager where you have to make people redundant but i reckon it's probably one of the worst things you ever get called called upon to do Is a uh, a leader and a manager, there might be people out there that think differently, but who knows? It certainly was for me. Uh, It's a difficult, difficult process and often people end up handling it in quite an adversarial way when it doesn't really need to be that. Um, So what I mean by that is that, you know, so people, there's a lot of emotion around in any of those sorts of situations Mm. and people react to it. And you end up with this escalation of reaction rather than just a conversation about, well, here's how it is when this isn't necessarily a comment about you personally. It's not like we hate you. Uh, It's it's not like we're even attempting to hurt you. It's just that here's what we're dealing with right now. Yes. Um, I suppose some recognition that the other person is going to get emotional. Absolutely. And shut them fire off their mouth. Yep, it's not about you, and and that's all okay. But but we seem to sort of uh, we seem to think that that's not going to happen. You know, it's going to be a very clean kind of easy, clear cut environment, and and a lot of that comes down to expectation. You know, think think it through. What would what would this person expect? How would you like to? how would you like to hear that news? And that's your version of it. It might be different for somebody else, but even just thinking for a while about the other person's point of view, what would they need to know? What questions would I ask if I was in their shoes? Hmm. Uh, are all things that can help us clarify expectations. And the thing for me is any time there's conflict, friction or tension, I think it's a sign that expectations are out of whack with each other and that's a great time to pause and go, okay, let's, let's explore this in more detail Yeah, and unpack it. Where were you up? Where were you up? Where were you up? Yeah, <coughs> uh, and and to, you know, if you can set environments up where it's possible to do that, non-judgmentally, with a really high standard for where we want the bar set, high levels of accountability, personal responsibility, all of that. Which is, you know, that's not an easy environment to create, but you can certainly do it. Then those conversations become massively generative. You end up with teams mm-hmm. that are really, really well aligned in the places where they're not aligned. They can have very straight conversations about why or why not. And man, you can get some stuff done then. Yeah. And, and you see that in both environments, right? So out in that, out in survival world, uh, where people are actually able to, to make the best use of the people around them and the resources that they've got at their disposal. Way more likely to have a, a successful outcome than if they're, you know, degenerating into some version of Lord of the Flies. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I, I suppose, uh, just listen to it. I suppose a lot of what you're
0: talking about there is not just applicable to the workplace, but, you know, everyday relationships, oh, absolutely. personal relationships.
1: Yeah. Yeah, personal relationships mm. are probably where you, you can learn it the fastest if you, a, <laughs>
0: if you have a will. What was it? The
1: feedback loop
0: is fast <laughs> and aggressive. <laughs> That's it. Indeed. So, um, so if we go back to um, you're working at Bob Coopers and you're doing the change uh, mm. programs in the city as well. At what point and where? how did it come about did you think, right, I could go and do this sort of by myself and, mm. and strike out and, and create your own
1: business, which you have now? So I guess, again, that was a bit of an evolution for me. Um, over the, Over the 20 years that I was doing the change projects and the survival stuff, uh, they, they were part-time occupations, I guess, in many ways. and over, Two part-time jobs. Yeah, yeah that's like right. That. They, yeah, they complemented each other well. Uh, I was blessed with some stability and employment there, so the part-time job I had doing change management in Perth was very flexible, uh, so I was able to spend extended periods of time in the bush as and when I was needed to and mm. uh, could could catch up and all that sort of thing when I got back. Um even even way back then, there were elements of doing bits of consulting work or training work where people would come to me and say, "Okay, can you design a program for this situation or that situation so i guess i 've been doing that uh, in in various ways across all of that time yeah uh, five years ago, I made a decision to to start working for myself full time, and that was um, just one of those things i think the the moment for me evolved slowly but i came to a realization that 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 really feels like the work that i've been put on the planet to do you know it's the synthesis of my whole life this is Um, your purpose Uh, yeah i've got this kind of unique view on a lot of things you know none none of what i talk about is particularly new or special there's many people from the realms of psychology, survival, resilience, uh, organizational change and development that say a lot of the stuff that I say. i I reckon there's a bit of an ability to craft it in a unique way that makes it a bit more sticky and a little bit more hearable for people. There's, there's something about a, you know, fairly brash Aussie blokey bloke turning up to talk about that kind of territory, uh, that means that I can sneak up on Topics like emotion and stress and resilience in ways that are a bit unanticipated and sort of shape the state a little, mm. um, but you've got some good stories to boot as well oh absolutely yeah it, it, you know wide a wide variety from yeah. things i've experienced at home all the way through to you know times we've been out in the middle of nowhere and with our backs to the wall sort of thing so um for me, it was really that—that—that's what's kept me in there, I think, and has evolved now to a set of material that I think is particularly useful. Mostly, that's been feedback from customers that's kind of said, "Well, that, that works. Keep doing that." So, yeah, just add to it and expand it as we go. Um, but there's that—there is that feeling now of being kind of uniquely placed to comment on some of that stuff in—in in a way that. I don't think anybody else can, and there's uh, that you know that works really well for some people and not for others. It's, you know, it's not a universal one size fits all mm. story. I think it's, it's one of the one of the beauties of human nature and personal development is that there's there's so much space for looking at the same kinds of things from different angles, and and the more perspectives and lenses that there are out there, the stronger it all gets. I think.
0: Oh, I like that. Mm. I like that. I think, yeah, a lot of it for me comes down to having that element of self-reflection and introspection to understand uh, what do I like? What are my expectations? How do I work? Mm. And it could, you know, you can, you can gather stuff from all sorts of different perspectives. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. So in developing your business, have you had to take any um, lessons from sort of the survival outdoor um, environment and apply those to your business when it's sort of gone well or not so well or this
1: that and the other I think part of it uh, certainly one of the lessons from survival is that and, well and from the bush generally is that everything has cycles you know where, wherever you are now mm-hmm. it's just where you are now it's the only place you can start from you can't start from anywhere else and uh, and you can only deal with whatever you're currently faced with, and that's a that's a big lesson that that's come out very very clearly across all of those environments. I guess one of the, I think one of the things that gets us into trouble and causes causes us more stress than we need is that sense of I should be somewhere else, mm. you know. And I look at the business and I go, okay, well, in in terms of targets, it. I'd like it to be bigger than it currently is in terms of timeframes where I initially thought I could get to. In what kind of timeframe? It's t- it's taken longer than I thought it might for some types of things. Um, but that just is what it is, you know. It's um, for me personally, the I'm fairly relaxed around things like goals and targets. I I personally find them counterproductive. Mm-hmm. If you get too, I think if you get too nailed down for some types of things, on there by then. Uh, it actually constrains flexibility and, and yeah. can narrow it down. And, and for me as well, there's an element of resistance, even if it's me telling me what to do and I yeah. think it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to drag my heels a bit. Um, so there's, I, I guess a little bit of, of a flexible spirit in engaging the whole thing that is definitely informed by experience to date. Um, and it's certainly one of the things that I would say to people in almost any endeavour is it's actually more important to be moving and thinking than it is to be at a particular destination by a particular time Mm. and that's not to say that the outcomes don't matter you know I often get into debates about that with people it's you know it's not that I'm not interested in results yes Uh, the results clearly matter and they're you know, in business, results is one of the ways we keep score. You know? Yeah, yeah. Not much. Not <laughs> much <laughs> in business, there is no result.
0: Exactly. And at one level, we've got to put bread on the table. Absolutely. To
1: yeah, yeah. So, so all of that's important. Um, but a bit like uh, you know, Dad used to say something back on the farm. He said, you know, a wise farmer will plan for the um, plan for the absolute worst of seasons. He'll expect the absolute best of seasons and he'll accept whatever season turns up. Right. <laughs> like so, you know, when he was doing his budgets, they were always worst case scenario budgets because well what if it's a drought? What if we get wiped out by frost or a flood or something and there is no income, you know? So mm. what what's the worst what's the worst possible scenario? And I think there's there's a freedom in thinking that way as long as it's not a doom and gloom mindset. You, know, yes. where you can kind of get, get tangled consumed up in, by it. oh, this is terrible, it's all going to go pear-shaped. But there's a freedom in being able to go, you know, the worst that could happen is that. One, one of the attributes of people that survive in survival situations is that they, they very, very squarely face the reality of possible death. Uh, we might die. Now, what are we going to do about that? And just the fact that you face it square on means that it's less stressful. It's out in front of you. You kind of know what you're looking at. It's not inside and eating away. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that's, that's part of the picture. And then having a, having a degree of flexibility. So, you know, I often say with expectations, there's three parts. If they're clear, then that makes life a lot easier. That's really what we were talking about before. The clearer you can get, in terms of your expectations for yourself, people around you and the environment, the more likely it is that you'll be able to bring them to pass. The second thing is that humans have always been able to use their expectations to bend reality to meet them. You know, we we, we are a people of unrealistic expectations making stuff happen from nothing. Um, you know, nothing that's ever been invented or created has been done from a place of, I know I can do it. It's all, <laughs> other than perhaps a mental picture, I know I can. Yeah. It's always, that looks impossible up until the minute it's done, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing is that if we get too tied into how we expect things to go, if, we're not, if we don't hold them fairly lightly, then we end up like the person that takes a wrong turn in their vehicle and suddenly they're off their expectation map. And if we're hanging on too tightly to what we expected to happen, we become really inflexible in terms of our response to the circumstances we face. And so it's a case of kind of managing all of that, I think, you know, being clear enough that you actually got some direction, Mm. um, unrealistic enough so that the direction is going to create something worthwhile, and flexible enough that if you actually don't get there by Christmas, you're not going to melt down and it's okay, you know, throw all the toys on the ground and storm out of the room.
0: And hence why, as long as you keep thinking of moving, then Mm. you're in a good space.
1: Yeah,
0: awesome. Awesome. So as one well of the workshops, I notice you offer retreats and you also do workshops around um, guerrilla mindfulness.
1: Can you tell yeah. us a bit more about that? About guerrilla mindfulness? Yes. We started talking about that earlier. So there's a few threads to it, but the fundamental tool right. for guerrilla mindfulness is uh, the, th- the three breaths to shut down a reactive state. It, it's a, the central tool's got three parts. So three, take three long, slow, rhythmic breaths, which shuts down your reactive state. The second thing is to say, preferably out loud, and in as few words as possible, how you feel. What's your emotional state? Um, and the, the reason for that is that stating how you feel out loud, particularly out loud, it works. it works if you do it internally as well, but out loud has a profound impact for some reason. It reduces the amount of cortisol, the stress hormone, in your system quite dramatically and almost instantly. Um, Do you but, have to have somebody around? To no, not necessarily. No, just uh, yeah. for, for some reason speaking it out loud has an impact uh, to another person's val- valid and valuable, and uh, not always possible. Um, And out loud's not always possible as well, right? You know, pacing up and down the corridors at work going, I feel stressed and a little bit anxious might (laughs) might not be the ideal thing. Um, So that reduces your your cortisol. And I I say to people, what you want to do is slap a really clear boundary around that. So you're not talking about why you feel that way. Uh, The the purpose in guerrilla mindfulness of saying how you feel is just to acknowledge it, give it its place. And, and then either use its energy or move past it into whatever you need. So, you know, one of the things that often, often happens in survival is we get dumped with a heap of adrenaline and emotion Mm. and fear and stress and all of that. And that can be fantastically powerful for a, a period of short and intense action, but you've got to take the right action. So, you know, there's no, there's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a case of don't use that energy, capitalize on it, but direct it in the right kind of way. If we get stuck into the story about why we feel how we feel, that becomes more like a counselling session and it usually intensifies the emotion before it relieves it. And yes. so in a short, sharp, hard pressure situation that it doesn't uh, doesn't serve us particularly well. And, you know, to look back to guerrilla mindfulness, that's guerrilla as in freedom fighter, not big black ape. Yes. Uh, and the, the reason for it from my point of view was, you know, there's such a wealth of research and so many great... Uh, techniques and strategies and tools out there in the mindfulness space but when you're actually under pressure in the moment you you can't deploy them usually so you know if we were here and something that i said made you feel angry on the spot and you you fire up it's not like you can say to me oh mike you know just give me 20 minutes i'm just going to go and meditate for a while and yeah. you know get 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 my bits back in the box yeah, get and my on. Yeah, that's <laughs> try right, and come back and re-engage um, if we need to make a decision right now, you know, we might just need to be able to do it. And I often talk about we make so many transitions during the day that require us to often wear very different roles, very different hats, and very different energy in terms of what we're doing. Mm. It's possible in a company sense, for example, that you might, you know, your first mission of the day was get you get your screaming kids out the door to school. Second mission of the day was deal with traffic. Third mission of the day was a meeting in which you were told that the budget was stuffed, and your job now was to pull your pull your horns in. Um, the third one might be a performance management meeting, and the next one that you come to might be a, a you know welcoming a graduate from a university for work experience or something. And you know you you could from the first several engagements be dragging significant frustration, possibly even anger around, mm. and the last thing you want to be doing is greeting your your student with that. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just not an appropriate energy for that setting. Yeah, new customer negotiating a new contract. You know, you want to be able to leave that frustration behind. Be a clean slate, going clean out. slate, and focus on that. So, acknowledging the emotion helps to do that. And then the third step is just to state your intention for what it is you're about to do. Um, so that helps you just to get very, very clear about right. You know, I'm welcoming a new person. My intention is to be welcoming and open. Um, and in you go to that, and the, just those three steps take, you know, maybe somewhere between five and thirty seconds to do. Yes, helps you to Breathe, completely get out loud. stay yep. where you want to be. That's right. Helps you reset, deals with some of the stress that's potentially accumulated as you've gone through the day to date, and helps you to get very, very clear about how do how do I need to show up in this situation right now mm. for the best possible outcome. Like it. Yeah. Cool. How,
0: surely um, at times that it must um, wear on your patience when you've gone from these, like I said, these beautifully clear situations you know, out in the bush and, and you can see things with a certain degree of clarity and yet you come into sort of the workplace with layers and layers and layers of complexity but ultimately nobody's asking anybody to make Sophie's choice here hmm. and, and there's no life and death on the end of the line hmm. but people are for want of a better word faffing about Um, And you must be able to see that quite quickly.
1: Um, How does that
0: test your patience when you're trying to coach work with
1: people? Uh, For me, it's really, you know, I think the lens that I offer is the clarity of those cleaner and clearer environments. So um, I I recognise that that complexity exists and that that makes it, phenomenally difficult sometimes in modern work contexts to see a straight line from A to B. Yeah. And sometimes there is no such thing as a straight line from yeah. A to B. It's not just that we can't see it, it's it, it's more like a well we actually want to go to F and we're going to have to go via Z and Q yes. to get there, you know. <coughs> so um so really for me it's about how do I how do I help people distill and clarify where they're at, but also give them tools that are applicable regardless of how complex it gets and regardless of what the circumstances are like. Uh, And, you know, a big part of the learning for me over the years has been that we all face different, different types of circumstances throughout our lives. You know, we have periods of time that are abundant and joyful and happy and relatively easy. We have periods of time that are fairly cruisy and we have periods of time that are that are survival scenarios whether it's actually life at threat or whether it's just we need to make some drastic course corrections to sort something out uh, that's an ebb and flow we go through those cycles you know whether it's a, a sudden discovery of a significant health situation or a relationship breakdown or a new job or the loss of a job or you yeah. know there's, there's so many ways that that unfolds and a big part of the realization has been you know it's it's actually not the circumstances that dictate the results it's more of our response to them and you see consistently that the reason for the tagline on the business and the title for the book thrive and adapt is that you see people who can be in either the best or the worst of circumstances doesn't really matter they seem to be able to make it into a drama and a disaster where they're the victim. And you see people who are in the best or the worst of circumstances, doesn't really matter, who seem to be able to create opportunity and calm and clarity around them. And I'm really interested in how, you know, how do you do that? How do you shift that for people? And yeah. In a lot of cases, it's really simple stuff. Um, so there's definitely times where patience gets tried, but it 's one of those characteristics that i 'm blessed with an abundance of game you know, yes. <laughs> before I lose it
0: <laughs> so so there's a, there's a real boy part of me that wants to ask you what 's the scariest situation you 've been in where you 've uh, honestly had to say I, I think this could be it yeah uh,
1: I, th- I think the most intense one there's been a few, but the most intense one was uh, being stuck on a Stuck on a rope abseiling a waterfall in Vietnam, and uh, I, I was literally just over it was an overhanging cliff face with a with a good bit of big volume of water that was coming out of a dam uh, the so the water was cold even though the it was tropical jungle and fairly warm and because of the overhang i just I'd just reached the point where i couldn't I could only just touch the wall with my feet I was almost hanging in space and of just got a massive amount of water flow pretty much right on top of my head at that point so i'm I'm on the crux of the descent fairly much after that, everything gets a lot easier and uh I got stuck on the rope the initial reason for that was the the guy operating the the rope system stuffed up, and so he he created the first problem um, I'd done years of work as a vertical rescue person, so I had some strategies in my toolbox to get myself out of that. Uh, in doing so i used a knot that in western australia where it's dry and warm (laughs) works really really well but in a waterfall it turned out it was a crappy knot. you can't undo it when it's wet Uh, so i got myself out of the problem that he would put me into only to create the exact same problem but with my doing and i was i was hanging there in the waterfall so i I had three or four goes at trying to resolve that and um I was really down to my last ditch de- last ditch effort, so you know I could feel the energy physically getting out of my body. You know, you know getting world. cold, getting hammered. I had to keep my head in a really particular position, which was head down, so the water was cascading around the back of my head, so I could actually breathe, um, and it was it was pretty physically <laughs> intense. And the solution was to. Uh, get my weight off the rope, so I had to stand up against the flow and all of that. So that, that it was uh, physically very, very demanding, and I was kind of at the point where I realised I had one, pretty much one shot left at it, and then I was going to be stuck there. I wouldn't actually physically have the energy to resolve it, and um, I could see down through the water one of the one of the guys on their team had come down and was down at the bottom talking to the guy at the top and trying to talk to me I couldn't hear him because of the noise it's probably about 18 meters below where I was and uh eventually I saw he he makes a cutting motion at his throat and I thought shit they're gonna cut the rope (laughs) I'm 18 18 meters off the ground in a waterfall they're gonna (laughs) cut the rope um so I've I turned and put my back to the wall and uh, so that I could see where I was going and hopefully have a little bit of control over the fall and, you know, it was probably half a second after that that I was in, in a free fall. Into so a, they did, they cut well, it? Oh yeah, they cut it in, into, into the water which from their point of view was probably a smart decision because they didn't have a solution for the problem that I had yeah. um, from where they were with the gear that they had and they couldn't tell where I was at in terms of being able to solve it or not solve it. Um, so... You know, it was a bit of a last ditch effort, but yeah. probably not a bad call on their part. Um, so yeah, big splash down into very shallow water, bounced off a few rocks, and uh, swam at hyper speed, pretty much up a flat <laughs> rock. To because the next part of the problem was that the the river was flowing down over another set of rapids, and I had about twenty five metres of rope tied to me. So I, I really don't want to be going down those rapids with with this rope attached. You know, so yeah, um, yeah that was probably the most compressed version of one of those moments where you go this this could well be it you know it's, um, and it transitioned between me realising that I was pretty much at the end of my resources you know if I, if I don't get my solution sorted in the next round I'm stuffed yeah. and then when I saw him about to cut the rope it's like well that could go anyway you know I, I, I could land literally <laughs> on a bloody great big rock at the bottom of this waterfall and that'll be it yeah um i got asked once whether you whether you see your life flash before your eyes and all of that you know that was i think the fourth time that i've been acutely aware that i'm looking at the doorknob of death's door and um in all of the situations i've been in there just hasn't been time i've been so flat out in the moment dealing with the situation that there hasn't been time for that i don't know whether it when that happens after the, after the actual moment of transition or in periods where there's a bit more time or what, but it's it's never happened to me. It's just been flat out. Actually, given, given, given what you do and
0: and you put yourself, I mean, I'm aware of your, was it your your birthday present to yourself Mm. where you've got, where was it? You got dropped off miles and miles and miles away and then came home by yourself. Yeah. Um, given that, um, you do trade, uh, it would seem on the surface you do tread a tightrope between um, being alive or not with the situations that you yourself put yourself in there. Um, how would you set, How would you describe your relationship with death and, uh, and and your potential demise?
1: So I guess the first thing I'd say there, particularly because my mother might listen to this, is that you <laughs> know, I don't have a death wish. Um, <clears throat> and while some of the things that I do may well appear risky from the from the outside and probably are riskier than you know, lots of wife is. Uh, they're usually fairly well considered and fairly mm-hmm. well planned. I, I don't tend to do things randomly, and um, I'm interested in things that that test capability and skill rather than situations that are completely, you know, out outside of control and sensibility. Um, how do I see death? Well, you know, I guess that's another one of those lessons from the bush all those years ago. You know, you see, you see the cycles of life. You see things live, die, grow, renew, mm. fail, decay. You know, all of that. Um, so, so it's part of it. I think one of the uh, death is part of life. It's inevitable. It's the same as a survival situation. You know, the reality of those situations is well, you may die. And to to look at it in any other ways, sort of delusional. And, and mm. you know, I think it's possibly one of the biggest delusions that we currently have in our society is that we that we don't consider death. Where a lot of us are afraid of it. Um, so it's just a scary and prickly
0: thing for a lot of people.
1: To well, go a- a- to. absolutely. Really consider. Absolutely, but it's going to happen to us. That's that's the thing, right? Yeah. So,
0: um, and I guess taking that what was it that second step of guerrilla mindfulness. Or just bringing it out. Yeah. At the very least, saying, I'm scared of this. Absolutely. Or, or having a discussion. Yep.
1: You are immediately taking a lot of sting out of it. Uh, yep. Yeah. And then, you know, back back to our little loop about expectations as well, you know, how, to, uh, how would you like your passing to be, I think, is a great question mm. for people to at least consider themselves, if not talk to the people that they're closest to about, um, so that we don't end up in situations where... The people who care about us are in a position of making decisions for us, with no real idea about what our wishes might be in those yeah. moments. Um, so, you know, I don't have uh, I don't have any sort of desire to rush towards it in a big hurry. Somebody, well, I was talking to somebody recently about some of the stuff that's happening globally around. Extending life, you know, and, and there's some pretty interesting stuff in that territory that we're potentially, in our lifetime, it'll be possible for humans to live for a good number of more years than we than we currently can. And somebody said, "Oh, why would you want to do that?" And, well, it's quality of life for me, you know, if you could live 300 years and over 300 good years, imagine the imagine the wisdom and the adventures yeah. you could accumulate in that time. Indeed. Um, but if it was Um, If it was 80 years and then the balance dribbling into your bib and not aware of who you were and where you were, well, I'm not particularly interested in that. Exactly. So so it's not about rushing towards it in any way, shape or form, but I think that there's a freedom in acknowledging that it's inevitable. Um, You know, we see we see situations at least a couple of times a year. There's an article in the newspapers here in Perth of someone that's either died or gone close to it in their bedroom at home because mm. someone lost control of a car and drove it through their wall. Um, so when, when it comes to risk, you know, it's being alive, there is a risk of death. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, I guess I've got a fairly... Uh, a, ..a fairly non-reactive... State of mind about it. it. It will happen at some point. I'm I'm not exactly sure what that looks like when it when it gets there. It'll it'll just be another adventure. Yes. <laughs> it'll be another doorway. That's right. <laughs> Indeed. Another hill to walk over.
0: Indeed. Um, what's one of the things that people would be surprised to know about
1: Mike house? Surprised to know? <laughs> uh, if they. People who know me well are usually not surprised by anything. They go, "Okay, I didn't know that about you, but it doesn't <laughs> surprise me." Um, I've done a bit of knitting, right? Yeah, quite, quite enjoyed that. I, I learned to knit with my grandmother, and I knitted a jumper at one point. Um, and I've done a couple of scarves in varieties of colours for a few people close to me. Nice work. That um, probably doesn't go particularly well with the image of survival bag. <laughs> Depends if
0: you're knitting like special pockets to stick. Yeah, in that's that right. <laughs> uh, and, and finally, um, you talk about uh, um, thrive and um, adapt and thrive, thrive and adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, what does thriving look like for for you in the years to come? I know you seem to take things in, in your stride, but if we look mm-hmm. over the next five or ten years, what does uh, thriving look like for yourself?
1: Uh, so for me, the the current game is... Well, I guess if we strip it back to its basic bit, thriving looks like being able to adapt to whatever life throws at me mm. and, and to do it cheerfully and well. Yeah. Um in terms of something that's a bit more sharply focused, for me business currently is about how do I how do I speak to a bigger audience and have a have a bigger impact on people around me and so that's about, you know, further refining messages and strategies for teaching people the stuff that I know, uh, but also engaging with wider audiences in different kinds of ways. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really keen at this point in life, I guess, to uh, for the stuff that seems to resonate with, with people, with the audiences that I've spoken to so far, to take that out into a wider and wider context and apply it to more and more situations. And I guess that's part of that legacy stuff that we were talking yep. about before. You know, it really does feel like life purpose for me. Um, and you know, on a more personal front, to to live to live the relationships that are close to me well, to you know, <coughs> to do them in a way that. Uh, that I guess are quite a testament to the stuff that I try to teach other people how to do mm. and uh, that, that value and honour the people around me that are close to me. Super. Oh.
0: So if anyone's out there listening to this and they're thinking, well, oh, I'd like to find out more, how, how
1: how can they do that? So probably the easiest way is to hit the website, um, mm. which is dot au. And there's a heap of info there, including contact details. And, you know, I'm, I'm very open with those. If anybody hears this and wants to have a chat about any part of it for any purpose, it hmm. really because is a very it, broad invite. Is it, is it primarily corporates that you work with or do you also do personal stuff as well? A little bit of personal stuff. It's mostly business related. Um, but I do a little bit of personal stuff too. And, it's really everything you know across the spectrum of business. It's everything from sort of small mum and dad businesses right up to the publicly listed big companies, uh, and across most sectors these days. So, uh, my default answer to almost any any invitation to check something out and see if I can add value is yes, yes. and and then see what the fit looks like and and where we go from there. Awesome, awesome.
0: Well, Mike, thank you very much for spending time and coming and being on WA Real podcast. Um, like I said at the start, WA Real is about real stories with people from Western Australia and I, you certainly tick the box that today. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for speaking openly and honestly and answering the questions that I've given you um, right down to my boyhood one about what's the scariest <laughs> situation. I couldn't help that. But uh, no, thank you very much. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Bryn. Thanks for the thank invite. You. Cheers.